Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Last week, we talked about the effects that sin can have on a people. If you remember, a man named Achan failed to follow God's decrees regarding Jericho. He smuggled some of the things out of Jericho that were strictly forbidden. And as a result, as a consequence of his rebellion, the entire nation actually suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of Ai, which was kind of an inconsequential foe, especially when you compare it to Jericho. His behavior, his rebellion, his sin cost the nation dearly, and it served as a very important reminder that sin isn't private. Sin isn't something that we can manage. Sin will affect everything that it touches. Sin wants to destroy marriages, families, churches, communities. Sin wants to destroy nations. You can't deny that. The truth is that sin is bad news, but we've been called to spread good news. And the good news is this. We have a surefire way to handle sin, and it's through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as a church understand that today. In Joshua chapter 7, we learn the disastrous consequences of Achan's sin. It cost the lives of soldiers in the army. We know those men who died in that first attack on AI. We know their families were affected. I mean, of course, that we see that every time. We have soldiers in, in foreign conflicts here who lose their lives. We understand the cost affects more than just the person who lost their lives. We know that it cost the lives of, a- of, of Achan's family as they were judged as well. But it also cost Achan his life. And we understand that Achan had a very low opinion of God's word. God said, don't do this. Achan said, I'm going to do it anyway. As we move into Joshua chapter 8, we'll actually see what happens when God's people take sin seriously. If you've got your Bible open to Joshua chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 today in Joshua chapter 8. We'll spend a couple of weeks in this chapter Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. If you're able, please stand with me as I read these words from Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil... And its livestock, you shall take his plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. And so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city. But all of you remain ready, and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the consequences that we learn from. God, that we would not repeat the same mistakes again. Bless us now as we think through the, this passage together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. 
The end of Joshua chapter 7 leaves us with God's judgment against the house of Ai. And the last verse of Joshua chapter 7 says a, what's really kind of a scary phrase. It says, the Lord turned from his burning anger. Underline that if you're an underliner. That's a terrifying phrase. Thank the Lord he turned from his burning anger. But you think, okay, I've been mad before. What is burning anger? You've been angry before, but maybe you've never had burning anger before. The, the Hebrew here actually gives us a word picture. This is a, this is a, a visual. A lot of times the, the original languages are written in such a way that it's the visual that explains it perhaps even more than the actual words themselves. And, and burning anger refers to a kind of anger that has a very physical, visible manifestation. It's more than just an emotion. We've been angry before, but it's when anger crosses into having physical, it's visible physically. And so what are those signs of that sort of anger where maybe, maybe your face is flushed, maybe, maybe you got a vein that pops out. I got a vein right there. It'll pop out every single time. You know, if, if they put a, a heart monitor on, your blood pressure is going up, your pulse is quickening, you know, you, your, your face changes its shape. There is a very visible evidence of anger that has happened. Maybe you lash out as a result. And so this picture of God having this burning anger, I, I don't want to encounter God who is burning with anger. One of the most famous sermons ever preached was preached by Jonathan Edwards, and the title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't want to meet an angry God. I don't want to stand before God in his anger, in his wrath. I want to stand before God covered in the blood of Jesus because that's the only way that I can stand up to the holiness of, of this God. And so God as a result of what Achan has done, the sin that he's brought into the nation, he is burning with anger. But praise the Lord, at the end of chapter 7, he turns from that burning anger. This really is a, a remarkable part of God's character because his anger is righteous. God can get that angry and not sin. The New Testament encourages us that we can be angry, but we shouldn't sin. And it's really hard for us to walk that line, to, to experience anger and not allow that anger to, to boil over into sin. How does God's anger work here? It's certainly righteous. It's nothing like our anger. Because if you get into a situation where you're that angry, Maybe you've gotten into an argument with a friend or, or perhaps even your spouse. It takes a minute to cool down, doesn't it? You know, you don't just go from, from zero to 60, or in the case of anger, you don't go from 60 to zero in a, in a snap like that. It takes a minute to, to cool off. I mean, there's wisdom that if you're that angry, to walk away, to let that anger cool down. But I love the fact that God's character doesn't work like this because God turned from his burning anger but then he's able to immediately go and say to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Like, if, if I understand God is that angry and he's immediately going to speak to me, like, I, I want to hide. But instead he looks at Joshua and says, do not fear or do not be dismayed. Like, God, you were burning angry a split second ago. I, I need to be fear, uh, fearful and dismayed. But God's anger is not like ours. We have grudges and we harbor those things, but God, when he turns from his anger, he turns from his anger. God's anger was satisfied. There was no grudge. There was no room for unrighteousness. When God's anger was satisfied, what time was it? It's time for work. It's time to do the work. It's time to get back to business. 
So what happens? God turns from his anger, and then he gives Joshua the strategy. If you read all of chapter 8, it's an incredible battle. If you like the way these battles unfold, it's an incredible battle sequence that God gives us in Joshua chapter 8. The Israelites are able to use their previous failure to lure out the AI folks in confidence. And there's a word there about learning from your failures. He's able to to take that previous failure and the confidence that the folks of AI had developed, but they're so confident that they miss the fact that there's there's a gigantic army lying in ambush. They run right past them. And the ambush is able to go in while the army is out pursuing these these Israelites. The battle is decisive. Ai falls just like Jericho, but only this time there's a difference. Instead of like Jericho where everything was devoted to the Lord, this time the nation's granted permission to keep the spoils of battle. All because they took sin seriously. They took sin seriously, which raises the question, what happens when we as God's people actually actually deal with sin and actually take sin seriously. The first thing we see is that there is a renewed commitment to God's plans and purposes. The Aiken problem, as I'll call it here, was nothing but a distraction from the bigger picture of what God had called Israel to do. This AI was certainly next on the list, but what happened in between Jericho and AI was this massive national distraction. Because Israel's primary task was to bring judgment against the evil Canaanites. God mentioned back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, that Abraham's descendants would eventually return to the land of the promise to deal with the iniquity of the people of Canaan when their iniquity had reached its full measure. God had promised Joshua that the land was theirs for the taking. Back in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, God said, "'Be strong and courageous.'" For you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and courageous to observe all the instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This is the command. This is the promise. This is the plan. This is what God has for the people of Israel. This is what he wants them to do. They were successful to begin with, with Jericho, but they got distracted when Achan deliberately disobeyed that direct command from God by taking the things that God said were devoted to him. And this is so true. Sin is always a distraction. It's always a distraction. And it doesn't matter if it's big, nasty public sin or if it's private, personal sin. Sin is always a distraction. Sadly, we see this in the church today. Our own denomination certainly hasn't been immune from it. You've got these sex abuse scandals. You've got marital infidelity. You've got abusive leadership. The list goes on and on and on, even within the church. You've got all these high-profile failures. They're terrible, and they ought to be dealt with, but all these high-profile failures are huge distractions from our main calling. The fact that we have to stop and and deal with these things is just a distraction from, from what from what God has called us to do. Again, I'm not suggesting that we don't stop and take the time to deal with it. We have to. But dealing with it takes time away from the primary task that God has given us. Private sin is no different. This gets into our hearts a little more. People are distracted trying to cover it up, keep it a secret. And here's the thing. We can't be doing God's best if we're busy trying to make sure no one finds out about our sin. The truth is God already knows. We're not hiding anything from him. The nation of Israel reminds us we don't have to operate this way. 
God comes to, to Israel once Ach, the Achan problem is dealt with. He renews his calling upon their lives. It's time to go to Ai now. We've dealt with the sin. We've dealt with the problem. It's time to get back to work. You've got work to do. Jericho was but the first stop. God's promises are still being satisfied. God's promises still need to be fulfilled. There's still work to do. It's a big land, and there's a lot of conquering that has to happen. And so God revisits his original commission to Joshua. He says, remember, be strong and courageous. But this time he says it a little bit differently. He says, don't be afraid or discouraged. It's obvious the people realize just how vulnerable they are, that they can't do this on their own. There's no doubt a shock. But they dealt with the sin, and now it's time to refocus on their calling. It's all just a distraction. And the devil's very pleased to keep us distracted by sin instead of focusing on the calling that God has given us to disciple our neighborhoods and the nations. But we also see that when God's people deal seriously with sin, that God's people are effective at accomplishing God's calling. Because the nation now, they not only have a renewed commitment to God's purposes, they also they also prove to be remarkably effective at doing what they've been asked to do. The military plan they formulate is incredible. It's a spectacle. They take advantage of that overconfident AI. They set up a division in ambush, and they set up a dummy division to distract the enemy. The dummy division acts beaten down. They lure the, the army out of the city. When the coast is clear, they send in the ambush division, takes the city, and then advances on the rear of the army. And the army there, the enemy army, they're without a chance. And Israel is very effective at doing what they've been called to do. This is still the case for the church today. Now, we live in a different time because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's changed the way that God deals with us. It's also changed the way we as the church deal with a, a world outside. As the church, we no longer conquer armies. We fight spiritual battles with satanic forces over the hearts of people. But I believe this. I believe God wants us to be effective, right? I mean, he's, he's given us a task. He doesn't give us a task and say, I hope they fail. He doesn't give us the work and say, I hope it's a, a miserable disaster. He gives us a task, and he wants us to accomplish the task. He wants us to do that which he's called us to do. But it's no denying that the church today seems to be very ineffective in doing what it's been called to do. We see churches in other parts of the world where Christianity once ruled supreme that are simply mausoleums of a church that's no longer effective. In our own day and time, in our own nation, we see churches that are closing. I fear that we are a generation away from a whole lot of churches closing in the next 20 years. But I don't think that's what God wants from us. I think God wants us to be incredibly effective in doing what he's called us to do. In order to be effective, we have to deal with sin. And again, there's two types of sin that we're fighting against. First is gross sin. We think about gross sin, and those are the sins that we look at and we automatically recognize it as blatant. There's no question. It's like, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong. You think about things like drunkenness and debauchery or adultery and perversion, they're obvious. We open the Bible, we see that it's prohibited, we see that there's, there's clear teaching about it, there's no question about it. And sometimes these are the easiest ones to deal with because in a lot of ways, we're forced to deal with it. We see the high-profile failure of a leader who's caught in sexual sin, and it's, we know we have to deal with that. It's not something that we can ignore. But then there's other types of sin, those covert sins. 
Those are a lot harder to diagnose, a lot harder to find. They're the sins of, of attitude, the sins of inaction. They're the sins of apathy and laziness. They're the sins of elitism and superiority. And they're often diagnosed or disguised as other things, and they're very hard to diagnose. But these are the sins that have so often affected our effectiveness. One thing we understand, we're still learning the cost of the pandemic on various areas of our lives. Recently, you've heard news reports about how the pandemic has affected education and how the children who had to be locked down and do all the learning online, how they're behind the, uh, where they should be as a result of all of this online learning. And teachers can bear witness to this, that kids who've spent years doing Zoom classes are nowhere near to the level where they ought to be. Recently, though, we're, we're, we've seen the, the effect on the church, and we're still trying to figure out the effect of the pandemic on the church. Across the entire scope of evangelicalism, it's not just Baptists or Presbyterians, it's everybody. The pandemic has exposed toxic and sinful attitudes. Um, you call it laziness, apathy, indifference. We talked last week about the rise of the Duns, those folks who used to go to church but for whatever reason have just stopped going to church and being part of the community of faith. Whatever name you call it, the result is still the same. Over the last three years, people created new patterns, and a lot of those patterns don't make much room for church. Again, I'm not talking about people who are sick or ill or, or, or those whose, whose life is at stake if they were to catch COVID. Of course, we're not talking about that. But I think we all have recognized this fact and this fact alone. There's a lot of Christians who over the last three years have had no issue going to the grocery store or the restaurant or the football game, but who haven't been to church in almost three years. We see that. We've recognized that. And it hurts our hearts as the church when we identify that. We also know there's sins of inaction, things we know we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. I look at Achan, I think he had both those sins. He had the gross sin by taking those things from Jericho, but then we talked about last week the fact that he had the opportunity to, to own it. He had the opportunity to put a pause on everything, and he didn't. And you see that overt or that covert sin of quietly trying to blend in and not get caught. And here's the thing. Both these categories are dangerous. And if the church desires to be effective again, we not only have to deal with the gross sins that we see in the camp, we also have to deal with the subdued sins, those sins that may be far more deadly because we've allowed our hearts to be hardened by their presence in our lives. Now, we do understand that the church and the nation are, are two different things. We look forward to that day in heaven when there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, when, when our ethnicity is preserved but our national identity is erased, where we will join the, the kingdom of God and we'll be part of people from, from all over the world. And so we understand there is a difference between those things. We know that the church is greater than the nation in the sense that it's bigger than the nation. But we also understand there's no denying that God is concerned with the nations. How do we know? You read your Old Testament, and the prophets had plenty of things to say about nations that weren't named Israel. So many of the Old Testament prophets had specific words that were directed at Israel's neighbors, at, at, at Egypt, and, and those sort of things. I think of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, but Jonah wasn't even a prophet to the nation of Israel. Jonah was sent to a foreign nation to bring God's judgment against a foreign nation, except that he was mad because that foreign nation actually repented 
when they heard what God was planning. And so we know God is very much concerned about nations and national identity. And in as much as I believe that God is concerned about sin in his church, I believe that God is concerned about the sins of the nations as well. I mentioned earlier the idea that politics is downstream from culture. I've heard it another way, though, that we get the politicians that we deserve. You say, I don't like my politicians. It may be exactly what God wants for us. I believe this, though. If we're going to change those things, the only thing that will change those things is the faithful witness and work of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what changes a culture. That's what changes the community. One of the things that's ignored in this equation about culture and politics is the witness of the church. Because we know that the church can be an agent of change in the nation. In fact, we know that the church must be an agent of change in the nation. If you go back and look at our own nation's history, there's stories of great awakenings and, ri- and revivals that, that changed the course of the nation. The, the Revolutionary War was fought because of the First Great Awakening and the, the, the ideas of freedom that were birthed out of the First Great Awakening. We understand that, that revival and awakening changes a people. But we look at our nation today and we have to ask the question, what exactly is broken in our nation today? That's quite a list. It's quite a list. We recognize that we see a Romans 1 type of scenario that has unfolded where we openly celebrate lifestyles that are opposed to God's created order. I was watching a football game yesterday and there was an advertisement for a a drug that was for HIV that openly celebrated lifestyles that were hostile and opposed to God's plan in creation. I watched as, I almost had to turn my head because of the vulgarity in which that advertisement was placed on my television screen just in the middle of a football game. In our own land, we've seen the family demolished. We watch as generational theft takes place that's sanctioned and sought after by our leaders Let's not forget the genocide that continues to rage in so many of our cities and states. We think that because Roe versus Wade was overturned that that somehow has ended the battle for life in the womb, but the fact of the matter is it just scattered the battle into 50 different, 50 different battlegrounds. I watched the Senate debate between Herschel Walker and Reverend Warnock, and the question about abortion came up. And I think one of the most memorable events of that debate Walker was talking about the number of black babies aborted in Georgia. And he looked at Reverend Warnock and he said, he said, Reverend, you should be more concerned with baptizing those black babies than murdering them. Now, I don't agree with baptizing babies, but I certainly don't agree with murdering them while they're still in the womb or out of the womb for that fact. And it's a shame that I have to clarify that today, but that's the world in which we live in where even that statement has to be clarified. That's a national sin that continues to rage. We have states in our union that are putting billboards up in neighboring states inviting abortion-minded women to cross state lines to have their babies murdered in a different state. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what's happening in our land today. Romans 13 gives us a clear purpose for government. 
God's purpose for government. And the Bible says that God's purpose for government is to reward good and punish evil. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I agree wholeheartedly with what God says here, is that the purpose of government is to punish evil and reward good. What's the problem, though? We're living in a time when there's actual uncertainty about what is good and what is evil. And sadly, we saw this come to light during the pandemic. It's gospel-preaching churches that are often seen as the evil of our day. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 says again, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to all people. I really think God knows what he's talking about. I don't look at this and say, is he sure? Is he, is he confident when he says that? I don't look at this and say, does God really know what he's talking about? I really believe that God understands what he's talking about when he tells us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to all people. Sadly, when we look at the streets of our cities, the halls of our state houses, indeed, even when we look into our own White House, we actually can see what is happening. We as a people are actively embracing sin to our own demise. I'll be the first to say this. You cannot legislate morality. We can't pass laws that change hearts and minds. That's what the gospel does. That's what we as the church do. We are in the business of introducing people to the best news ever that changes hearts and minds. And so we can go to the ballot box and we can vote in whatever way we think is appropriate to vote and we can have a sweep or not a sweep, whatever you want to do. We can have state houses that pass laws that we say are just and that laws should be put in place, but those laws do not change the hearts of the people. Just look what happened when the Supreme Court threw out Roe versus Wade. That didn't settle the abortion debate. People didn't look and say, oh, okay, guess that's done. If anything, it brought it to light. It created rage and fury surrounding that whole question. At the same time, we cannot legislate morality. I also believe that we cannot legislate a way that paves a pathway for immorality. We cannot write laws that, uh, that lead people down a pathway of darkness and evil. Instead of being exalted, by our commitment to righteousness. In so many ways, we're being disgraced by our embrace of wickedness. And we say, how do we fix this? What do we do? Individually, as churches, even, it's easy for us to deal with sin. It's easy for me as a, as a human being to repent from my sin and to lean into Jesus. But nationally, it's much harder to turn the ship around. And instead of being exalted by righteousness, Instead of a nation like ours being a beacon of hope for the world, we find that we're quickly being disgraced by our own national sin. And as God's people, we need to be a people that are committed to righteousness in our land. We have to be the people who are speaking truth into the land. We have to be a nation of Jonah's who are looking at, a, at an evil system and saying, this is not what God says, this is what God says and leading people into a pathway of righteousness that's highlighted by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that in our country there's power of reform in the ballot box, and so many of you have voted already, and that's good. We need to continue to take advantage of that opportunity that, that we have while we have it. At the same time, 
while we take advantage of the ballot box, we must also commit to pray. We have to commit ourselves to pray, not just for our church and for the needs within our families. We also have to pray for our nation and our leaders. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we find this line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the model prayer that Jesus gives us, he actually challenges us to pray that this world would look more and more like that world. That in this world, that God's will would be done just like it is in heaven. That in this world, God's, God's plan, God's purposes, God's decree, God's uh, loyalty from God's people will be manifest just like it is in heaven. We're challenged to pray that, even in the model prayer. At the same time we pray, we also need to make sure we're committed to righteousness in our own house as well. The Bible doesn't pull any punches here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says it very clearly. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Jesus wants a pure bride. He wants a clean bride. He wants a holy bride. He wants a people who take seriously sin, who keep short lists of sin and short accounts of sin, who are quick to repent, slow to anger, faithful to the word of God, bearing witness to the cross of Jesus to a lost and dying world. I've said this before and I'll continue to say it. Hope is not found on Pennsylvania Avenue. Hope is not found in the houses of Congress. Hope is not found in Atlanta, Georgia, regardless of who wins the governorship or whoever wins whatever state elections happen. Hope is not found in the county commission seat of Walker County. Hope is found in Jesus. And the only people who are pointing people to that hope are bodies like this all across our land. We have to be committed to that today if we want to see our culture and our nation embrace righteousness and turn from sin. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity with which it speaks. I thank you, Father, for the example given to us by Joshua and the nation of Israel. They took seriously sin. They, they dealt with it in, a, in the way that you described. And as a result, Father, you gave them victory over their enemies. I thank you, Lord, that we look at the story of Achan and the defeat of the Israel at Ai, and I thank you, Father, that judgment against sin has already happened in the person of Jesus for those who are in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ, for the, the way that you took care of our sin in Jesus. And Father, even as we, as we hold dearly to that truth, may we be men and women who are quick to declare that truth to a lost and dying world. Lord, we, we look and we complain about the the trends that we see in media. We look and we complain about the trends we see in politics. We look and we, we're disgusted by, by so much of what happens in the world today. But God, the hope that we have is in Christ and in Christ alone. And the only hope that this lost and dying world has is faith in Jesus. And so, Lord, even as we look to our own families and our own households, God, give us eyes to see any of those covert sins that we may be hiding, like Achan's buried treasure. 
Lord, maybe even as churches, even as a denomination, give us the courage to deal with those gross sins that are evident and visible. Give us the courage and the confidence to walk in righteousness and our turn our back on evil and iniquity. And God, even as we look to an election day this week, this week, we pray as you told us to in the Lord's Prayer, that as we look to this lost and dying world, we look to a culture that's sick, we look to a political structure that's sick, and God, we continue to pray as the Lord taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray you'd raise up your church today to be a voice of righteousness and hope in a dark world. Work in our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.